one thing the UK is going to have to do, I think, is try and figure out what kind of country it wants to be, what its global role is going to be. Is it going to be a good citizen? Is it going to be friends with its neighbours? But I think it also wants to be seen as an influential country in the world. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Hello and welcome to the first episode of IFA's podcast, Die Kulturmittler, in 2021, and also to the very first episode in English. My name's Dan Wesker, and from now on you will occasionally hear my voice in this podcast. The title of the podcast can roughly be translated as The Cultural Conciliators. Being dedicated to the so-called third column of foreign policy, it features conversations with stakeholders, players and experts on current cultural relations topics. In this season, we'll be rotating German and English episodes, and in our first interview, in English of course, we'll be talking about the UK. In 2016, the citizens of the UK voted to leave the European Union. From that moment on, there have been lots of discussions and lots of transition deals. Anyway, Brexit officially happened on the 31st of January 2020, and there's been a lot of talk about what Brexit will do to the British economy. But how does it affect the cultural scene? And which new relations and networks are going to be built now that the UK has left the EU? My guest today, you've already heard at the beginning, is a true expert on this matter. My name is Stuart MacDonald. Today I'm a consultant based in London, working on international cultural relations, which includes a whole range of topics, themes, countries. Um, but one of the major areas that I've been involved in over the last few years has been thinking about the future of international cultural relations in Europe and the future of uh, how the UK is going to take its work forward in that area going forward um, after Brexit. But a little bit about me, if I may, just very quickly. I worked for the UK government and the Scottish government for 25 years. Um, I was a policy advisor to government ministers on education and culture, mostly, but also in digital matters, and that's very relevant to the work that I do today. After that, I worked in North Africa for a while, and then... I uh, set up the Centre for Cultural Relations at the University of Edinburgh, which was an interdisciplinary research-led centre, which also did engagement and impact activities internationally. And through that experience, I did a, started doing a lot of consultancy work with governments, the German government, with the UK government. After that experience, I decided to go on my own, so I actually worked in Germany for six months, I was in Stuttgart working at IFA in 2017, I think working on the Brexit report there. Um, I've also done work with the University of Mainz, the University of Bamberg, and I have uh, done work projects also in Berlin with the Stifterverband and with other colleagues and collaborators there on different things and a whole range of subjects, as I say, which are relevant to cultural relations with a focus on higher education, digitization, cultural connections, but most of what I do is research into what works in public policy terms, because from my point of view, the activities of governments, the activities of government agencies are absolutely crucial in this area. As he said, Stuart MacDonald has also worked for IFA. 
In 2017, he published an IFA study, The Impact on Brexit on International Cultural Relations in the European Union. There he wrote that Brexit forces us, and I quote, to challenge our assumptions and traditional ways of thinking about international cultural relations. That was a few years ago. Still, I asked him what exactly he meant by that. I think this sentence, um, I'm trying to remember what I had in my mind when I wrote it. Thinking about the UK and Europe, the British Council was one of the founding members of UNIC, the EU National Institutes of Culture, and continues to be, I think is continuing to be an associate member of UNIC going forwards. And I think it's almost in the DNA of the British Council and any cultural relations practitioners in the UK that the UK would, would have continued to play a leading role in international cultural relations, whether or not Brexit took place. Now, Brexit having taken place in the way that it has, uh, we're in a particular situation now. But back at the time, I think when I was thinking about this, the consequences of the UK coming out of the EU, uh, we didn't know that the British Council would continue to be an associate member of UNIQ at that time. So a lot of the assumptions about collaboration, about who, who we work with, not just on a day-to-day basis, but in terms of who shares our values, who shares our broad understandings of the world, whether they're cultural understandings or uh, understandings about, say, how civil society operates, that these sets of understandings were clearly going to be challenged by Brexit, which was a result of what Richard Higgett calls the populist nationalist zeitgeist, a turn of events and culture and politics. It's not just in Britain, but it's across the world, which challenged, I think, some of the liberal assumptions on which the whole notion of cultural relations is based. In your 2017 uh, study for the British Council, uh, Soft Power Today, you pondered how smaller arts organisations could develop in a way to develop connections, reduce misunderstandings and engage about values and ideas. What impact will Brexit have not only on the British cultural sector but also on the international cultural relations? The impact of Brexit on small arts organisations in the UK, I think, in the short term, is hard to disentangle from the impact of COVID-19. That's the first thing I would like to say. The challenges of having to deal with Brexit would have been bad enough on their own. Having to deal with that and COVID, I think, personally, I'm not optimistic about this, I think is going to deal a very heavy blow to the cultural economy and cultural ecology of the UK. And there are already numerous examples of small arts organisations struggling to survive, individuals who are having to retrain into completely non-arts sectors. And there was an incident uh, before Christmas where a government minister, I think it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, advised a prominent ballet dancer that really he should think about retraining as an IT operative. Yes, that made made lots of headlines, that one. It did, yes. But what he was saying was indicative, I think, of an attitude amongst a certain section of, um, not necessarily the government, but a certain view in society that arts organisations, which were struggling to survive financially anyway, um, following the financial crash, had probably been dealt uh, a body blow by COVID-19, because I think it was in the context of COVID that that remark was made rather than in the context of Brexit. But certainly in terms of the context of Brexit, I'm not sure that Brexit as such is really going to 
have such an impact on small arts organisations. Obviously, in the UK, they'll lose access to sources of funding, which they possibly had through the Creative Europe scheme in the past. Having said all that, there are new business models, largely through online and digital platforms, which are thriving and which are building new kinds of networks and new kinds of affiliations, developing new models of cultural production, which I think, to be honest, are largely unaffected by Brexit and have been accelerated by COVID. What sort of industries are we talking about there? Well, just to give you an example, I'm actually a trustee of a small visual arts organisation called Arts Cabinet. And Arts Cabinet operates at the intersection of, if you like, research and the practice of contemporary visual arts. So it looks at artist research practices. And they have been massively successful over the last year in terms of building networks across Europe, networks globally. Um, They're managing from a, a very small resource base to publish quite significant contributions to art and to thinking in this field, and all on really a very, as I say, a very small resource base in ways that simply wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. It couldn't have happened. And, you know, the models of exchange and mobility and so on that were set up then, which are still with us and indeed have been accelerated recently by the European Commission, the extra money for Creative Europe and so on, are really models that uh, are sort of pre-COVID models it seems to me, and they're largely pre-digital models in the sense that they're not recognising the shift that COVID has, is driving. Forcing people to go online has created new spaces for dialogue. It's created the new endless Zoom conferences. If I wanted to, I could spend all day, every day in the most fascinating Zoom meetings. I would be exhausted, but that possibility didn't exist pre-COVID. These things just simply didn't happen. So on the one hand, Brexit reduces some uh, opportunities, uh, less than the sector itself, I think, claims, frankly. Because to be honest, the take-up of Creative Europe projects in the UK was always rather low and benefited a very small number of arts organisations that were active in Europe. It's always been easier in some ways for UK arts organisations to build international links in English-speaking countries. So they would tend to go to the USA or Canada or Australia or wherever. So in a sense, I think the impact of Brexit on the arts sector in the UK has been overstated in some ways. But I'm also optimistic that these new channels of communication, these new dialogue platforms and so on, show a way forward, which actually should increase the agency and autonomy of cultural actors, um, if you like, vis-a-vis state funders on the one hand, or bureaucratic um, instrumentalization on the other hand. So the impact of Brexit on the cultural sector might not turn out so bad after all, especially with the UK staying a member of the EU National Institutes for Culture, the so-called UNIC. Stuart MacDonald mentioned the network earlier. But Brexit doesn't only affect the cultural scene. It also changes European academia. By the end of 2020, it has been decided that the UK will no longer be part of the Erasmus Plus programme. Instead, the UK is introducing their own programme, which is called the Turing Scheme. This change affects especially young people, and it's being harshly criticised. Richard Lochet, the Scottish University's minister, called the decision a huge blow. Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford even talks about cultural vandalism. 
I asked Stuart McDonald if he agrees to calling this change a lose-lose situation for both the EU and the UK. Well, I think it's like anything else. The picture is a bit more complicated than some people like to make out. Do I think UK coming out of the Erasmus scheme is a good thing? No, I don't think it's a good thing. And I don't think that, I suspect that there may be one of uh, Boris Johnson's famous policy U-turns about that at some point. I would not be at all surprised. Having said that, the UK really, if you like, when you say it's a lose-lose, the UK invested more in Erasmus than it got out of it, really, at the national level. There was a huge imbalance. Far more students and faculty came to the UK from the rest of the EU than went from the UK to the EU. So there was always an imbalance in that, and that meant a financial imbalance. So it became a very expensive scheme to operate. And if you looked at the types of students that participated in Erasmus, there's some research by Strathclyde University into this. Um, most of the students from the UK who were interested participants in Erasmus were students who were studying modern languages. So they'd be studying French or German or Italian or Spanish or something. So they, they had a direct interest in participating in the Erasmus scheme. In a sense, it wasn't really benefiting the vast majority of students, and it was really um, perhaps not quite the sort of lose-lose situation that everyone describes. Is the Turing scheme an adequate replacement? I don't know yet, because I don't know enough detail about it. I have a major concern in that the Turing scheme seems to be one-directional. It just seems to be about giving opportunities for UK students to go overseas. It doesn't seem to be funding... Uh, opportunities for students from other countries to come to the UK. That's totally disappeared, has it? That has totally disappeared. And again, I think that will have to be looked at, and I think is being looked at. Britain's not the only country in this situation. Switzerland is also in a similar situation and has its own scheme. Um, it's not in Erasmus. Uh, and the Swiss scheme does pay for students to go to Switzerland as well as for Swiss students to go to other countries. So... I really think that the Erasmus situation is regrettable uh, in so many ways, but I do also think that it was benefiting a rather narrow section of uh, the population of young people in the UK. And if the Turing scheme can broaden the base of participation, then that would be fantastic. I mean, I know myself, I'm Scottish, um, and I know there's a great reluctance on the part of Scottish students to travel overseas. And Scottish universities put a lot of effort into their own schemes, really, to promote international experiences for undergraduates. I mean, remaining with the universities, what do you think Brexit means for the, the, the scientific exchange and joint research projects? We know that have long enjoyed a, a constructive dialogue with each other. Is, is that something that will continue or... Yeah, I mean, uh, the UK is staying in Horizon Europe. It's also staying in the Euratom nuclear research program. There's a thing called the ITER project, which is building a nuclear fusion system. There's an Earth monitoring project, I think it's called Copernicus, and EU satellite and tracking services and so on. So the, the UK is going to still play a very much an important role in research and innovation at the EU level. And that's fantastic news. Earlier research showed that that was a major concern, really, of certainly of the German government, um, that, you know, the opportunities for collaboration with UK research-led universities should be maintained. Uh, the UK does have a very significant science and research base, and it's great that these opportunities 
can continue. That, that is extremely important. The, the next question sort of touches a little bit on, on what you said, but I mean, Brexit obviously is, is going to lead to shifts in, in power dynamics and cultural relations. How do you think this will open up the chances for new, maybe non-European relations that have so far been perhaps underrepresented? Is there a, a shift that is moving away from the European uh, market? Yes, I think so. I think, um, well, we're in the middle of a process, uh, well, the process is coming to an end, called the Integrated Review, which is looking overall at the UK's foreign policy. And hopefully that's going to be published in the next, I don't know when, the next few weeks, next month or two. And I think what is already clear, though, there's a, a consensus that the UK is looking actively to become more engaged at the global level and in several key ways. One of them is by joining with other countries in trade agreements on its own account, which, of course, it couldn't do when it was part of the EU. Uh, so specifically, the UK is becoming a, a candidate to join the CPTPP, the Comprehensive Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, as it's called. Uh, that's 11 countries around the Pacific Rim, and perhaps now Joe Biden is being inaugurated. Perhaps the USA will, will join that. I know the UK is also looking at using the G7 presidency in 2021 and has already proposed extending the G7 to, I think they call it a D10, with other countries, using that as a way to cement ties with like-minded states, um, possibly running up to Biden's Summit for Democracy, which I think is happening later in the year. The UK is opening up again to other countries which it sees as regionally important, democratic countries that are in the G20. So countries like Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, and some former Commonwealth countries. I just wanted to ask about the Commonwealth. Is, is, is there going to be a noticeable increase there with Commonwealth countries? It's hard to say because the politics of the Commonwealth are quite, quite complicated. Um, but certainly there are some countries which are, have got very dynamic economies in the Commonwealth. And I, I suspect that what we're seeing is a British foreign policy that's going to be more centred on British interests, um, uh, particularly in relation to the economy. So countries like Ghana, um, Malaysia, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania, countries like that that are growing quite fast would be of interest. Whether the rest of the Commonwealth would be involved in the same way, I couldn't say. I just don't know. I'm sorry. I wish I, I did. I don't see personally that becoming uh, the Commonwealth as such becoming a major source of interest for UK foreign policy. But I think obviously the UK will continue to develop good relations with, with all of the Commonwealth countries, including countries like Canada, of course, you know, and Australia, where you can certainly see uh, noticeable increases in activity and a new willingness, I think, to engage with India and countries east of India. So there are also other countries that I know are on the, the list, which are market potential. And I think, you know, I don't need to give you a list of those, but they're not Commonwealth countries necessarily, but there are other states around the world. Now, what all this means in practice in, you know, the big picture of the UK's foreign policy is uh, more than I can say at the moment. But I suspect that, yes, there will be more of an overt approach to some of these countries. It's not to say that these uh, links haven't existed while the UK was in the EU. Of course they have. But it's just that the UK, through mechanisms like trade deals, can raise its profile with these countries and can be seen to be engaging with them more actively. And I think, to be honest, what, what you're going to see more is, is a question of what the UK's sort of soft power and cultural relations is going to look like in the future. And we have some indications that the UK is going to be 
um, focusing more on questions like support for democracies, support working with other countries, which the UK sees itself as having common values with. So these would be EU countries, working with them to promote the SDGs uh, and in relation to topics like climate change, you know, and uh, possibly trying to take a more global role in bodies like the United Nations or, you know, groupings of countries around specific issues. We'll see how it all goes, but the, that's my guess. So yes, I think in a sense, there'll be a more expansive global focus. But of course, the big problem is going to be resources and focus. You can't be everywhere doing everything all at once. And one thing the UK is going to have to do, I think, is try and figure out what kind of country it wants to be uh, globally, what its global role is going to be. Is it going to be a good citizen? Is it going to be friends with its neighbours? I think the indications are that it, that it does want to do both of these things. Uh, but I think it also wants to be seen as an influential country in the world, you know, as a member of the Security Council, a major member of NATO. So I think there are other multilateral organisations as well as the EU that the UK will be very active with. Okay, because, you know, in, in many senses, Brexit has been uh, associated with anti-immigration and more introspective and, and reactionary. But by the way, you're talking, it sounds like it's, it's actually going to grow uh, rather than constrict itself. Brexit gives uh, Britain the opportunity to, to nation brand at a 21st century Britain. And with those characteristics that we know, I mean, what would the solid new nation brand look like? Is there a way to still build a, a positive nation brand from all of this? Well, there possibly is. I think there are a lot of domestic challenges. And if there's one thing that um, I'm increasingly aware of in the work that I do, it's that how you're seen internationally reflects how you are at home. I mean, we all live in a digital goldfish bowl these days. Everyone can see what you do, so what happens at home really is what drives how you're seen abroad and how effective you can be internationally. And I think there are lots of, lots of challenges for Britain. I think that domestically in the UK, you know, there are, many, there are many issues ranging from inequalities through constitutional issues. Um, one of the big political events in the UK inevitably this year is going to be elections to the Scottish Parliament in May. And if the nationalists win a big majority there, then the pressure for Scottish independence will definitely grow. And that gives a real headache to any UK government that's trying to present a unified image of the UK overseas. Uh, and then there's the question of Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland is still part of the EU trading area. So there are different rules in Northern Ireland. There's a border now between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, uh, at least in trade. And that can be mitigated in some ways, but uh, the, the long-term consequences of that are going to be very interesting. Uh, and of course, within England itself, which is the UK is very asymmetrical, England is much, much bigger and more populous than Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But within England, there are many issues to be resolved that people have been talking about for my whole lifetime without success. And indeed, in my past, I used to work on uh, regional economic policy in England. I, was, I lived through the 2004 um, referendum in the northeast of England for devolution from London, which was rejected. People don't know what they want. They don't know whether they want more devolution within England or whether they want an English parliament to make English laws whether the UK should become some kind of federation, therefore, or, or what's going to happen. I think the, the global image of Britain, certainly to global activity, absolutely. Commitment to global challenges, absolutely. 
But also, I think there are many domestic issues which are going to impact on that. One of the founding ideas of the EU was the vision of a common, a so-called pan-European identity. This term even has its own Wikipedia page, and it's really a very strong concept, which has also been the basis for many political discussions on the EU level. Now Brexit has often been interpreted as an expression of increasing nationalism, or Euroscepticism, or even as a sign for the EU falling apart with all its values. So if one country just decides to leave this vision of unity behind, what does that tell us about the European identity? And what impact will Brexit have on it? I mean, one of the ironies of Brexit is that really one of the things which drove the notion of a common European identity was the creation of the single market, which was largely initiated by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s when she sent Lord Caulfield to the Delora Commission. There was a desire to reinvigorate what's called the common market, and that resulted in the Single European Act. And I think, I don't know if this is what she intended to do or not, but what that ended up doing was selling to EU citizens the notion of a common European lifestyle. So you could, you could go live wherever you wanted, you could study wherever you wanted, you could do, you know, within the single market, you could do many things that you couldn't, beyond your, your own country, that you couldn't have done before. And I think that that notion of there being a common European lifestyle kind of underpins this notion of a common European identity and gave an impetus to it. The Commission did a study on what the common European identity consisted of back in 2012. And I think it's, it's worth quoting today because I think it was a very good study um, because I think it highlights some of the issues. These, these are issues in the EU rather than in the UK at the moment, but, but they're all relevant to Brexit. And one of them was the notion that people would identify with Europe. You know, they would see themselves as European. And to some extent, I think that's come about. But I think that um, what the research I've read suggests is that some people see themselves, their primary identity as European, but they're more likely to do so in relation to specific contexts. So in the case of Brexit, there was a clear mismatch between the Europeanness of, say, the arts and cultural sector compared to the sense of, of so the lack of Europeanness of, of the people who voted for Brexit. And there was a clear divide there in terms of how people saw themselves in identity terms. That split is a kind of culture wars split almost in, in, in the UK. And that split is going to be very, very hard to reconcile. It's going to be with us for a long time. And I, would, and I, was, I was actually going to shift to, to, to the European side of that. I mean, we, we speak a little bit about uh, England there and uh, the effects. Yeah, do you think the European Union is going to suffer? Is, is there going to be a, a loss there in uh, losing such a, a close partner? It's, it's difficult to say because it's, <laughs> it's, well, I think I've always noted a certain reluctance there. But uh, is, is England going to be missed? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I suspect that the European Union has got other issues to think about. And Brexit has been kind of done. It's kind of over, almost. And there's certainly an eagerness here in the UK to move on from Brexit and to think about a future good relationship with the EU. I mean, the UK isn't going anywhere physically. It's still going to be here. There's still going to be a huge amount of trade. There's still going to be a huge amount of exchange and cooperation in all sorts of areas. 
Uh, it's just that the UK won't be participating in the European Council or the European Commission. Now, whether that impacts on the rest of the EU, I honestly don't know. One thing it does un undoubtedly do, Brexit is a complete failure and the economy in the UK deteriorates rapidly and there's, the UK breaks up and goodness knows what. I think that could be a major disincentive to other exit-minded people in the EU, in other EU countries. I think, on the other hand, if Brexit is a great success and the UK doesn't fall apart and it becomes a prosperous and successful middle power in the world with a lot of agency and freedom to go its own way, then that might be attractive to people who are exit-minded in the EU. But I, honestly, I don't think it's going to be a central thing for people. I, th I, I think the memory of Brexit will start to fade. And I think the, that, as you say, for many, many years, the UK's relationship with the EU has been ambivalent, to say the least. And certainly talking to friends in France, they say, well, well we never thought that Britain was part of Europe. Uh, we always thought London was a nice place to go and work and, and live and all the rest of it, but we never really saw the UK as, as you know, one of us, <laughs> in a sense. And I think in the UK, there's a, there are many different points of view, obviously, but I think there's a kind of similar view that, you know, it's great for the EU, EU to stay together, hang together, become a major power uh, uh, that we do a lot of close business with, and that's a good thing. And it may even be good for the EU and EU integration that the UK is not there stopping other countries integrating more closely if they want to, because we did for a long time. Brexit is certainly provoking a lot of change and it's still not that easy to forecast all the implications. At the same time, some of the consequences might not even be measurable in hindsight because of COVID-19, which has changed our lives profoundly. Anyway, as Stuart MacDonald explains, what follows Brexit doesn't necessarily have to be for the worse. And we are learning now how new technologies provide the basis for a broad cultural network that can easily cross nation borders. Next month, in the upcoming episode of Die Kulturmittler, Lara-Lena Goder will host this podcast in German, This year marks 50 years of IFA coordinating the national contribution of the Federal Republic of Germany at the exhibition in Venice. That's why with our next guest, we'll be talking about the German pavilion at the Biennale di Venezia. My name's Dan Wesker. Thanks for listening and take care. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.